Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, doctors and researchers say that vaccinating children will be crucial for protecting the broader population. But no vaccines have been authorized for kids yet. Drug makers only recently began trials for 12 to 15-year-olds, making the wait for a shot likely to extend to at least the end of the year. We'll talk with Dr. Paul Offit, a vaccine researcher and pediatrician, about what that means for returning to pre-2020 routines. And we'll get his thoughts on the latest CDC guidance for adults who are fully vaccinated. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The first major sign that vaccines are having tangible effects came yesterday when the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced that fully vaccinated people can socialize maskless and indoors with unvaccinated healthy people. But even as many Americans get their first taste of normal life, doctors and scientists say fully returning to pre-pandemic routines will mean vaccinating kids. Joining us now is pediatrics professor and vaccine researcher Paul Offit. Welcome, Dr. Offit. Thank you. Before we get to kids and vaccines, I do want to ask you about the new CDC guidance that says fully vaccinated people, meaning two weeks after their shot, can be indoors and maskless with unvaccinated people as long as the unvaccinated are a single household with a low risk of severe illness from COVID-19. Dr. Offit, that feels really big. I mean, many grandparents haven't been able to play indoors and kiss and hug their unvaccinated grandkids for a year. It's actually the most common question I've been asked over the last week or so is, you know, uh, from grandparents, you know, I'm vaccinated, my spouse is vaccinated, can we hug our grandchildren? And the answer I gave actually about a week or two ago was yes. So I think it's the first sort of crack in, in in the wall here that we are slowly getting there. Yes. So clearly you agree with this new guidance. Is it because there's more evidence that fully vaccinated people are far less likely to spread COVID-19? Well, it's just it's a matter of sort of relative risk. You you know that if you're fully vaccinated, say with the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, that those vaccines are 95 percent effective. And and although uh, against disease. 
And so although the studies haven't been done by those two groups, Pfizer and Moderna, to see whether or not it protects against asymptomatic infection, it's likely to protect against, at least at some level, asymptomatic infection. So, I mean, the, 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 most, the least risky thing you can do is stay by yourself in your room, you know, for the next few months, but, but that's hard to ask people to do. So we are going to slowly start getting out there and interacting, at, which means that there is some risk. But, the, the, you know, this, this is, I think, what the CDC pros proposes is not a zero risk situation. They're just saying that this is a lesser risk. So in terms of those interactions, do visits with unvaccinated people mean that you should be bubbling with them? Or can you go to different households with unvaccinated people as long as the people you're visiting, um, it's just one household at a time? Yeah, I think so, so if it's small numbers and you're vaccinated, then, then you can feel pretty comfortable that you're not going to, to get sick. And you can feel pretty comfortable that you're going to ma- not make other people sick. But I think the key thing here is small numbers and fully vaccinated. And I think people need to understand what the word fully vaccinated or the phrase fully vaccinated means is that if you're talking about the mRNA vaccines, that's two doses and at least two weeks after the second dose. And when people say the unvaccinated should be at low risk for COVID-19 or for severe illness from COVID-19, what does low risk mean? Well, it doesn't mean no risk, I think, which is important. So, so if, you're, if you're unvaccinated and you, you have a visit from someone who is fully vaccinated, that's, that's a, a very, very low risk. It's not zero. Um, it's hard to quantify exactly because we don't know what percentage of people are shedding or are still contagious, meaning still infected, even though they're not sick. We don't really know that yet. So we're taking our best guess. Um, and we'll learn, I suspect, as time goes on, exactly um, how much of a guess that was. But I guess that means that you're you're low risk for having severe illness if you're younger, if you don't uh, have pre-existing conditions, and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I mean, I'm fully vaccinated. I've gotten two doses of vaccine. I, I finished my second dose more than a month ago. Um, nonetheless, when I walk outside and, and go into any sort of situation where there are other people, I always wear a mask and do my best to social distance for the main reason being that 95% uh, effectiveness is not 100%. I may be that one in 20 people who still could get sick when exposed to this virus. So until I think the, 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 the level mm. of sort of cases and hospitalizations and deaths dramatically declines, I'm still going to feel at some risk. Let me ask you this about the variants, because that's been a really big question. Do you think with the rate that people are getting vaccinated that we will reach enough of a critical mass of people who are fully vaccinated to potentially avoid the worst impact of the variants, meaning that we won't lose a lot of the ground that we've gained? Or is it still too soon to tell? Right. So, so let me sort of define terms. The, the virus that, that sort of swept through China was not the virus that left China. The virus that left China and then swept through Europe and the United States was the first variant. It was called the D614G variant. So it was, it was more contagious than the original virus that was in China. Um, and all the vaccines that have been made have been made to prevent that disease, the D614G form or strain of SARS-CoV-2. Um, but other variants have come up, which makes sense. I mean, it's, this is a bat coronavirus that's adapting itself to growth in people. Um, as it adapts, it's going to create these strains that are often more contagious. That is exactly what you would expect. The critical question is, um, 
does in natural infection with the D614G strain, which is what virtually all those natural infections were in the United States, or does vaccination with these vaccines that are designed to prevent the D614G strain, do they protect you adequately against these variants, the UK variant, the South African variant, the Brazilian variant? And the answer to date seems to be that, that, that either natural infection or immunization will prevent you from being hospitalized or be in the intensive care unit or from dying. That's good. That, that line hasn't been crossed. You'll know that, that we're going to have to deal with these variants to a much, and, and, which is to say include them in vaccines, when you see people who are either naturally infected or vac fully vaccinated that nonetheless are hospitalized with mm -hmm. one of these variant strains, then we're going to have to in consider including these variant strains in the vaccine, and they're not in the current vaccines. Well, President Biden has vowed to have enough supply for every adult who wants a shot by May. And it's good that so far we're seeing that these vaccines are effective against really severe illness or hospitalizations. So it's really raising hopes of a return to normal life. But I want to ask you, will a return to normal life be possible without kids being vaccinated or a vaccine developed for kids? Right, so here's what I would say. Um, you have right now you have about 25% of the population that's already been naturally infected, and you have probably another 10% that are fully vaccinated. You have another 10% that are on the road to being vaccinated. So you're talking about 40% of the population that already is immune, essentially, assuming that that a, a variant that escapes immunity doesn't raise its head. 40%. Um, if we're going to try and and um, stop the spread of this virus, said another way, if we're going to try and get adequate herd immunity, community immunity, population immunity, um, I think you need to have 80% of this, this population immune. Mm. So that's another 40%, which means another 120 million people, which given a two-dose vaccine that was most commonly used means another 240 million doses. At the current rate of vaccination, we can get there by the summer. We can, assuming we're willing to be vaccinated and willing to get to that 80%. Um, in order to, to get to the 80%, I think at some level, we are going to have to vaccinate children. You have, you know, 26% of the population in this country is less than 21 years of age. So I, I do think that's that, you know, we're going to need to vaccinate at least the older children. And I think that's doable. What worries me the most is that people will choose that, that, that right now, uh, let's take a step back. What, what's happening right now is two things are working against this virus. One is it's getting warmer and two more vaccine is getting out there. So I think you're going to see the numbers continue to decrease as we move into the summer months. This is at its heart a winter respiratory virus, but it's not going to go away. It's still going to be around. And then the question is, what happens next winter? Next winter will either be just be a small bump as long as we can get to at least 80% population immunity, or it will be a major surge if we don't get there. And, and the reason that we wouldn't get there is that a critical percentage of people would choose not to get the vaccine because we'll have enough vaccine by the, uh, by the summer. And right now, we're, we don't see those people because we just don't have enough vaccine even for people that want it. So I think we're going to have to see what happens, what percentage of people are going to choose not to get this vaccine right. come the summer. So what is the status or when do you expect that we will have a vaccine for kids, say 12 to 15 years old? Because I understand that right now, 16 and older, under certain circumstances, can get the current vaccine. Right. So so the um, the Moderna vaccine is approved for use down to 18 years of age. The uh, Pfizer vaccine does 16 years of age. So there now currently are studies being done in children 12 to 18 years of age. The, the studies are not going to be like the studies that you just saw for Moderna or Pfizer were 30,000 or 44,000 people, or in the case of Johnson Johnson, 44,000 people um, were vaccinated. 
Um, rather, they're going to, be, and the main reason for that is that those studies, those big so-called phase three efficacy studies were done to see whether the vaccine prevented disease. There, not a lot of children get disease. So, so to do those kinds of studies to prove that you can protect against disease would require large numbers of children, much more than, than 44,000 children. So, and that's, that's not going to happen. Rather, what, what you'll see is the so-called phase one, phase two studies where probably 3,000 children are tested to make, to make sure you have the right dose and the right dosing interval. And then to make sure that they, that, that dose and dosing interval consistently induces the kind of antibody response and also so-called cellular immune response that predicts protection against disease. And then I think I would imagine the companies would submit for, uh, again, emergency use authorization. Mm. And that's, that would be the way those studies would be done. And so then if they are enrolling kids now and starting the process of doing the trials, Dr. Anthony Fauci suggested that uh, kids under 12 could start getting shots at the very earliest would be the end of this year. Are you anticipating kids 12 to 15 would be able to, that a vaccine would be authorized for them before the end of the year? Yes, no, I think it's possible that you could have uh, authorization for the sort of 12 to 18 year old by the summer. I think that's possible. Think for the younger wow. child, down to six years of age, I can't imagine that would be until the end of the year. I see. So you, you're you're guessing that these trials will go very smoothly, uh, will get the data, and that uh, there there will be a vaccine fairly soon, sooner than some of the other predictions I've read. I think that's right. I think Dr. Fauci had said he thought we could vaccinate down to 12 years of age uh, by the summer. There are trials being done at our hospital, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, in the 12 to 18 uh, age group. That's already started. And I think there are many parents out there who are perfectly willing to have their children get vaccinated right now. We're talking with Paul Offit, professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. His books include Overkill, When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far. We're talking about COVID vaccine trials in children and when kids can expect to be eligible for shots. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What questions do you have about the COVID vaccine for kids and how it will affect you in terms of your return to normal life or questions that you have about the latest CDC news? You can Call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Dr. Paul Offit, a pediatrician specializing in infectious diseases and an expert on vaccines, immunology, and virology. He's the co-inventor of a rotavirus vaccine, and we're talking with him about COVID vaccine trials in children and when kids can expect to be eligible for shots. And it just so happens that my 14-year-old twin nieces, Mackenzie and Megan Juza, enrolled in the Moderna trial and recently got their first shots. I asked them to tell Forum listeners about it. So here's Mackenzie on why she decided to participate. 
in COVID, so many people were like doing so much for like others and helping people and putting their life on the line. And I really felt like I wasn't doing anything. And I felt that like I needed to do something. And I, and so when my parents said that like we, that there was this trial going on and we could um, sign up to, to participate in, I really wanted to do it because like I could help someone like, I could do something for someone else. Um, I wasn't, I didn't feel any anxiety at all because I mean, I knew that a bunch of adults had already been getting it, people that I knew and they were fine. They, it was very, it seemed very safe and they had to go through a lot of trials before they, we actually, humans actually had to get tested. So I didn't, I wasn't scared at all. Well, for Megan, for Mackenzie's sister, Megan, it was a little different. There's always that thought in the back of your mind. You're like, am I going to die? I mean, I knew that they tried on a tons of other groups of people, but there's still that bit of doubt in the back of my mind. But Megan says after she got the shot, she was super chill. Here she is walking us through the process. Downtown and we got there and we had to fill out a ton of paperwork. They had to give me a physical. I got a COVID test. They gave me a pregnancy test, which was so much fun. Um, I also had to draw blood, which was really interesting because I've never had that happen before to me. And then they administered the vaccine. Yes. So then for the next seven nights, I had to record any symptoms. Um, The only symptoms I actually had was just pain in my arm where they had given me the vaccine. So... I'm an eighth grader, and one of the eighth grade science standards in California is learning about DNA. And while learning about DNA, we also learn about RNA, specifically mRNA, which, if some of you might know, is what the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are made from. They're mRNA vaccines, and they're actually the first to be approved in America by the Food and Drug Administration, which I thought was, like, crazy. So cool. Um... And so it was really cool to learn how something I was learning about in school actually directly related to my life. That was Megan Juza and earlier her sister, Mackenzie Juza, talking about participating in the Moderna vaccine trial. And Dr. Offit, even though young people are less likely to fall seriously ill if they get COVID, they can, in rare cases, get very, very sick. Do you think kids need to be vaccinated before they can fully return to their, say, pre-2020 routines? Well, um, no, I don't think children need to be vaccinated before they return to their routine, assuming that, 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 you know, if the virus is still out there and still causing a significant number of cases, that they wear masks um, and do their best to social distance. So, um, uh, first of all, those were really encouraging um, tracks, uh, audio tracks. They just, you know, the, the <laughs> first one where, you know, she wanted to contribute, got to give you hope for the future. <laughs> that yes. All young people are like that. And and the, the reticence that that uh, that was that was expressed by the last uh, person you interviewed was, you know, was good. I mean, I think you should be a little skeptical about anything you put into your body. And you, you should wonder about whether this technology, which is a novel technology to make a vaccine, is going to be safe. So skepticism is, is fine. It's cynicism that that uh, that we try and avoid. But so that was all in all very encouraging. Yes, I'm very proud of them. 
the question I wonder, as you bring up skepticism, is if you believe that most parents will choose to vaccinate their kids, I know you see patients at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm wondering what kinds of discussions you're having, if any of the parents are relaying concerns about the vaccine or if you're seeing any signs of vaccine hesitancy at this point. Well, if, it, if it's judged by my emails, I would say that people, for the most part, are desperate to get their children vaccinated, at least. But that's it's a select group that just happens to email me. Um, I, I think that that um, it, it's it's as we get more and more data. I mean, if you look, for example, at polls that were done in September, October, then December, now, you know, January, February, March, you find a gradual increase in the public's willingness to accept the vaccine. I mean, it's been consistently going up. Presumably because the, the public, as they see more and more data, not just the initial tens of thousands of people in the pre-approval trials, but now tens of millions of people in the you know, post-approval trial uh, of vaccines that are being distributed. I think people now are comfortable that th this vaccine, at least to date, doesn't even cause a rare side effect. So I think that's gradually makes people want to get it. So that that's all good. I, I just worry that, um, that we're going to hit a wall at some point because right now there's not enough vaccine. So you're, even people who want it aren't, for the most part, able to get it. So until there's enough vaccine, then that's going to reveal how many people are choosing not to get the vaccine. And one can only hope that it's not a critical number. Well, Linda writes, our six-year-old grandson has severe asthma and has been hospitalized in the ICU several times in the past, including once when he got sick with the H1N1 virus. If we and his parents are fully vaccinated, but he is not, is it safe to take a trip to Brooklyn to visit him? We live in California. Well, I think the answer to that question is yes. I mean, it, if, if both those people are fully vaccinated, they're about to go visit him. Yes, go visit him, hug him. I wouldn't have a big party there with, uh, uh, you know, 15 unmasked people, but I think, sure, that that's absolutely fine. But remember, moving forward, this virus is essentially a respiratory virus, meaning it can cause pneumonia. So people who have asthma or any sort of chronic or long-term uh, lung disease will, will especially benefit from this kind of uh, vaccine. The CDC guidance, though, does discourage travel. They, they put an emphasis on visiting with uh, grandkids, for example, that are close by. Do you think that's overly cautious? It's definitely cautious. I, I think the CDC just wants to, to let a couple months go by. I mean, it's still March. You, you, as the weather gets warmer and warmer and more and more people get vaccinated, these numbers are going to come down. But the, one can safely say without contradiction that tens of thousands of people are going to die over the next six weeks. Um, none of them probably would have had to die had they gotten a vaccine, but we don't have enough vaccine yet. Um, if we can just hang in there for, for the next few months, I think we'll be in much better position. And what they worry about regarding travel, especially around any sort of holiday is that those always invariably end up being super spreader events and you end up sort of having these surges. So they're just trying to, to decrease these large group gatherings, which is what happens when you travel. Well, let me go to caller Arlinda in Oakland. And again, you can join us by calling 866-733-6786, emailing us at forum at kqed.org or posting comments or questions on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Arlinda, join us. Hi. Hi. I have problems with um, vaccinated people socializing without uh, safety precautions, masks, and um, uh, distancing because uh, these vaccines are only tested for preventing severe infection and hospital, you know, death. And um, so people could still get mild to moderate COVID infection, which could cause 
the long haul syndrome. And now they believe that 10 to 30% of people who get COVID develop this long haul syndrome, which affects multiple parts of your body, foggy brain, um, your digestive tract, like diarrhea, your autonomic nervous system, your blood pressure. So personally, um, I would rather be cautious and stay masked and social distancing with fellow vaccinated people until we reach herd immunity. Because who needs this long-haul syndrome? Uh, thanks, Arlinda. Thoughts for Arlinda, Dr. Offit? No, I think, Linda, you make, you make a good point. It's not, here's, here's, I'm going to tell you a situation that was described in the medical literature like 20 years ago, but, but it, and it's relevant to this, and it's going to sound kind of counterintuitive, but it, it actually makes your point. Um, there was a study done in Europe of a measles outbreak. And, and what they wanted to figure out was who was at risk for measles. What they found, not surprisingly, is that the people who were at lowest risk were those who were vaccinated and living in a highly vaccinated community. But what I'm going to say now is going to surprise you. But if you think about it, it shouldn't. You were actually better off being unvaccinated, living in a highly vaccinated community than being vaccinated and living in a highly unvaccinated community. The reason being that if you're living in a highly unvaccinated community, you um, are at greater risk of being exposed to the virus and no vaccine is 100% effective. You can consider the America right now, the United States as being a highly unvaccinated community. So, so even if you're vaccinated, you're still at some level at risk. And I agree with you. I mean, when I go out, even though I'm fully vaccinated, I wear a mask because uh, although I have a 95% chance of not having disease, that's still not 100%. But, but the trial, and also there's one point you made that, that's, that's mostly true. When the trials were done by Pfizer, the trials were done by Moderna before, you know, for approval through emergency use authorization, they were trials to see whether you were protected against disease mild, moderate, or severe disease, but they weren't trials to see whether or not you were protected against asymptomatic infection. Um, so there always is, is that as well. But, you know, I, I just take a selfish look at this. I, my, for me personally, I don't, I may be that one in 20 who, uh, who might get disease and, 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 uh, you know, I'm an older person. I prefer not to get the disease. Well, Alicia writes, the CDC guidance recommends vaccinated people continue to avoid medium and large size gatherings. But at the same time, they're saying that educators do not need to be vaccinated before returning to the classroom. Can Professor Offit speak to that? Right. So, so the, the again, we're not um, helpless here. I mean, a teacher can still mitigate, significantly mitigate risk by masking it and physically distancing. I mean, it, that is as powerful as a vaccine. I'm, I agree with teachers that they are an essential group. They are. I mean, we have... Um, you know, it's, distance learning is not the same as, as on-site learning, especially for young people. I can tell you in Philadelphia, you know, where I live, um, the, this is the only decent meal ch many children get during the day. Also, the instance, interestingly, of child abuse in Philadelphia has dropped to zero, which tells you that child abuse is typically picked up in the classroom. So I think we need to get back to school. And I, I agree with uh, Dr. Walensky at the CDC that teachers don't necessarily need to be vaccinated before they go back to school. But, but I know there's a major effort now in our city and in a number of cities to get teachers vaccinated. But I, I, um, I think, you know, it's not, if, if masking and physical distancing uh, was not available, then I could see the point. But, you know, we aren't helpless here. Uh, and it is amazing to me that people still continue not to mask and, and, and get into large groups. I mean, how much more information do we need at this point that masking works? Yes. I do want to know, though, where are we at with understanding transmissibility of COVID-19 among young kids? Well, so, so children um, can be infected. 
when they're infected, they're infected less, well, they're, although they are infected less frequently. And when they're infected, they're infected less severely. Very young children, meaning the less than five-year-old, is, is extremely unlikely to be infected because they actually don't have the binding receptor. The, 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 this is a protein that's on the surface of all of our cells that allows for the virus to bind, the so-called ACE2 receptor. That's why they're so unusual for a less than five-year-old uh, to get sick. But children can certainly get infected. They can transmit the infection, although less likely. I mean, if you look, for example, the percentage of people in this country that are less than 21 years of age is 26%. They account for 0.08% of the deaths. So they're, they're, that's why they weren't initially a target group, as distinct from you know people over 55, which account for 92% of the deaths from this virus. We have seen in terms of health disparities that Latino and Black kids are associated with increased risk for hospitalizations and ICU admissions. And so I wonder, you know, what your concerns are there with regard to how things break down? You've mentioned age, but what about by race? No, it's true. I mean, the, the Black or African-American community or the Hispanic Latinx community um, is, when they get infected, is more likely to suffer severe disease, which tells you all, why it's all the more important for that group to be vaccinated. And sometimes that group can be uh, a little more resistant to, to receiving a vaccine, largely based on a distrust of the healthcare system, which I think, I think we've sort of earned their distrust over time. Hopefully we can gain it back because it's, an important, it's important that they be vaccinated. Well, let me go to Karen in Thousand Oaks. Hi, Karen. Join us. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I have great respect for the doctor. I'm a pediatric nurse at a hospital, um, prominent uh, children's hospital in Northern California, and I work on an oncology hematology unit. We see a lot of uh, children under the age of five, and parents are asking if the vaccine um, does get approved for the general population, what is the recommendation for kids who are at higher risk? No, that's a great question. I, I think, you know, we're gonna we're gonna learn about this vaccine as we move down the line in terms of age. So we're gonna do 12 to 18 year olds now, test 12 to 18 year olds, then we'll test this, this sort of six to 12 year old. And I think we're gonna learn about dosing, dosing interval, um, you know, the ability of those vaccines to induce a consistent and reliably high neutralizing antibody response. And, 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 and we'll, we're also gonna to continue to learn about this disease in children. I mean, the fact of the matter is, you know, the same number of children died this past year from SARS-CoV-2 as typically die from influenza, which is between 150 and 200 children every year. So we need a vaccine for children, but usually it's not the very young child that, that, uh, that suffers and dies. I mean, I'm, I'm, I work at Children's Hospital Philadelphia. We have a COVID ward. Um, we don't really see the less than five-year-old in our, in our hospital with this disease. It's more the, the older child. And again, Dr. Paul Offit is professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I want to put another scenario out to you, Dr. Offit. So what about parents who are fully vaccinated? How safe is it for two families, say, with, with parents who are fully vaccinated, for their unvaccinated kids to play together indoors and maskless if they have young kids, say, under 10? Again, it's always an issue of relative risk. I mean, that, that is a risk. It's, it's probably not a big risk, but it is a risk. And so I, I do, my feeling on these things is, is you know, if, if it shouldn't be terribly bothersome to wear a mask. Um, you can still breathe through a mask. 
Um, it does a very good job at screening out these small droplets in which the virus is contained. It's a respiratory virus. And um, I, th I just think for the next few months until we get a much better handle on this and look at the numbers over, you know, just the last uh, month or so, they're, they're clearly going down and it's because the weather's getting warmer and we're vaccinating people. And so, so the next few months, if you can just hang in there, I think till April, May, I think things are going to get much better. But until then, I just think you should assume that everyone you come in contact with who isn't vaccinated um, is potentially infected. Well, Julie writes, is there any evidence or concern about the COVID vaccine and fertility in women and men down the line? Seems unfounded, but it's come up in conversations lately. Yeah, it's sort of, it was based on this false notion that the, the, the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, which is, is, the, um, is the basis of the vaccine. I mean, when you're, you know, you're given a, 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 either for Johnson & Johnson or Pfizer's or Moderna's vaccine, in a sense, they all work the same way, which is they get your body to make the coronavirus spike protein, and then your body makes antibodies to that spike protein. The, the spike protein was said incorrectly to mimic a protein on the surface of, of placental cells called syncytion one. That wasn't true. And so th thus was born the notion that it could affect fertility. There is no evidence, at least now that this virus has infected probably more than 85 million people in this country, that it is, has in any sense affected fertility. In addition, there's no evidence that women who were pregnant, who then delivered uh, babies, uh, that, that there was any evidence of harm to the, the child. The, the other thing, just because this comes up all the time, you know, the, 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 when, when Pfizer and Moderna did their trials, or Johnson & Johnson did their trial, they excluded pregnant women. Um, you actually, one of the audios you had of, I guess, your niece said you know, she got a pregnancy test, which, you know, bummed her out. But the, the, so, so they excluded pregnant women. Um, but pregnant women have, but, but nonetheless, the CDC, usually when that happens, the CDC will say, okay, it, pregnancy is a contraindication to getting this vaccine. You know, you shouldn't get it if you're pregnant because we don't have any data. But because we know that women who are pregnant are more likely when they're infected with this virus to have severe disease than those who were um, of the same age, but, but not pregnant, we know that it's important to get the vaccine. So now there's 30,000 women who are pregnant who've gotten the vaccine. There's another 16,000 who are being filed by the CDC. So we'll, 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 we'll learn about this, but right now, no problems. Hmm. We'll have more with Dr. Paul Offit after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Dr. Paul Offit, professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia about kids and the COVID vaccine. And we're talking about the latest CDC guidance. Dr. Offit is a pediatrician specializing in infectious diseases, immunology and virology, and is the co-inventor of a rotavirus vaccine. Join the conversation at 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at kqed.org. And Jeff in Fremont, thanks for waiting. Hi, Jeff. Hi. Um, I've been trying to get my head around the issue of how it is that at this point we don't know whether people who have been vaccinated can transmit the disease or not. I mean, it seems to me 
that when they were running the efficacy trials, they could have tested the people who had gotten the vaccine on a random basis to determine whether they are actually shedding the virus. But apparently they didn't do that. And because of that, now we don't know. Um, Can can the doctor comment on why that's the case? Jeff, thanks. Dr. Offit? Yeah, no, I think think you make a good point. Really, Johnson & Johnson, when they did their trial, um, did look at that and found that the the ability for their vaccine to decrease asymptomatic Thematic shedding was about, it happened in about 68% of people. They did that. But see, the, the right study to do is, is not to see whether or not people who are vaccinated are, say, PCR positive. The right study to do is to see whether or not people who are, are vaccinated, who are asymptomatic, uh, still can spread the virus by doing contact tracing studies. That's the real, that's the functional study. That really tells you whether or not you're, you're contagious, as distinct from, say, just measuring a virus by viral genome in your, in your upper respiratory tract. Those contact tracing studies, I think, are never going to be done. So I'm not sure we're going to really ever learn this. But I would say this. There are a number of vaccines out there that don't prevent asymptomatic shedding, like the rotavirus vaccine or the whooping cough vaccine or the influenza vaccine or even the so-called conjugate pneumococcal vaccine, yet we've been able to get on top of those viruses. So I think I think you're, you're right at some level when you say it's not fair when the CDC says still wear a mask because you don't know whether you're asymptomatically shedding. Um, the right kind of studies to really answer that question would have been hard to do, which is so-called contact tracing studies. Go to a college, vaccinate half the people, don't vaccinate the other half of people, and then follow them prospectively to see who, when they come in contact with those people, get sick or not. Those are hard, expensive, large studies to do, and, and I don't think they're ever going to be done. So that's the answer. It's because it would have cost too much money. Well, and it's it's hard to do. It is hard to do those studies. Well, Jeff, appreciate the question. And Jill writes, my understanding is that Johnson & Johnson applied to do a pediatric trial, including infants, when they got their emergency use approval. Can you speak to this? And if that means kids under 12 might get the vaccine prior to the end of this year or early next year? Well, I, I do think we're, we're on our way to doing the 12 to 18 year old. I think that, and that will very quickly, the six to 12 year old will follow. I, I think it's likely that as Dr. Fauci said, that we will probably have a vaccine for the six to 12 year old by the end of the year and for the 12 to 18 year old earlier, if that's the question. I, I think that's like. And Jill was specifically asking about Johnson and Johnson, whether they basically took steps to try to get emergency use approval for kids potentially even sooner. Do you know about that with regard to Johnson and Johnson's? And, and that would make sense for, for this reason. So, so Johnson and Johnson, so the, the Pfizer and Moderna use a messenger RNA vaccine for which there's no commercial experience. This is a novel vaccine strategy. That's not true with Johnson and Johnson's vaccine. Johnson and Johnson has this so-called replication defective human adenovirus type 26. Um, they're probably 200,000 people before this vaccine, were inoculated with that fact, with that not to protect SARS-CoV-2, to prevent Ebola virus. But, but that vaccine has been tested down to four months of age. So there's much more experience in the younger child. So I think it, it would not be surprising that they would go for a younger child uh, indication sooner than the other companies. Dr. Raffitt, what are the challenges of, of doing a vaccine trial for kids? For example, in terms of getting maybe a representative sample? How do you recruit participants? We were talking earlier about the more severe cases among Latinx and, and Black children. We've been having issues here even about kids get, kids of color, especially, or people of color from low-income 
communities being able to get access to the vaccines. There are concerns about challenges to vaccine distributions among kids in those communities as well. I mean, well, first, in terms of just the the vaccine trial itself, I mean, what are the biggest challenges just in case this timeline doesn't play out? Right. So, so I, I um, was fortunate enough to be part of the team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that created the strains that became the rotavirus vaccine, Rotatech. So th- that was a, va- a vaccine that now was, was licensed for use in this country uh, to be given to all babies at two, four and six months of age and by the World Health Organization in 2013 for the world's children. So I have a lot of experience trying to yes. do large clinical trials of babies. And, and I can tell you that, 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 that now that said, the, 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 um, the length of time it took us to make that vaccine was 26 years, and which is not atypical actually for a typical, for a, a vaccine trial um, or for, for creating a vaccine. Um, the, the, the phase three trial, which involved giving babies by mouth at two, four and six months of age, either a vaccine or placebo, was a prospective uh, placebo-controlled 70,000 infant, four-year, 11-country, $350 million trial, Um, which is about the the length, that's about the size and about the length of study for a typical pediatric or adult vaccine trial. This is a different time. I I mean, the pandemic forces us to do things much more quickly than than we would do otherwise. And so we're doing it now, not through a license. You know, when you submit, the company then submits a biologic license application to the FDA, the typical length of time it takes for the FDA to review that is 10 months, and then you have uh, approval, and then it goes to the CDC for recommendation. That's the way it normally works. But this is a pandemic. And so we do this through emergency use authorization. What's not different is the size of the trials. The size of the trials for Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson Johnson are typical of a pediatric or adult vaccine trial. What's also not different is the length of safety follow-up, which is usually you, you want to have at least two months after the last dose, because typically when bad things happen after a vaccine, it occurs within six weeks of a dose. I can go through all of those things, but, but that's the, the story. The difference, the reason this was emergency use authorization largely was because of efficacy, because you, you could say, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were effective for three or four months. You didn't know it was effective for longer than that. Now we're going to have more data. And I think the companies will come back and try and get a biologic license application. Now there's more more data in terms of length of efficacy, because those, you know, now you're getting close to from when those vaccine trials first started, you're you're getting close to almost, um, you know, eight months, nine months of data. But how, how big an issue is getting a representative sample, so a diversity among your trial participants for kids? Are you worried about that? Is that as important as in adult studies? Yes, it's important. It's important that, that, that these trials look like America. It's important that when yes. you go to people in, in these communities, you can say, look, you're not a guinea pig. These people were, you know, your community was represented in these trials. Exactly. I mean, I'm this so-called NIH active group, which was put together by Francis Collins. And, and our charge at the beginning, because we were formed obviously before these trials were done, um, was to make sure that these companies had a representative population of, you know, the, the black community, the Latinx community. And that was done. So uh, because you had to generate those. And the FDA also pretty much wants these trials to be done in America if they're going to be improved in America. I mean, look at the, the AstraZeneca trial. I mean, that's not, that vaccine is being given in the United Kingdom and, and other countries. We're not going to approve that vaccine until we see data in, in America's in, in, in American population. And do you think we've learned from the challenges that we've had uh, in terms of vaccine distribution about getting the vaccine to kids of color from low-income communities quickly? Oh, I, 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 it, is, it is really, really um, heartbreaking to me that, that you see communities like, for example, the, the Black or Latinx communities 
who, when they get infected, are more likely to have severe infection, be at the same time somewhat resistant to this vaccine. Um, and it's because we, I just think we've earned their distrust over time. And, and now we have to find a way quickly to, to find the people who can represent the medical profession and win their trust because it's the time is now. It's, it's hard to watch. I mean, I was in a, um, I had fallen and had a, a sort of gash over my right eye about a month or so ago and had to go to a local emergency room where I was getting sewn up. And um, an African-American phlebotomist came and was, was uh, taking my blood. And I said to him, because I was watching the nurses one by one peel off, it was about like one in the morning to get their vaccines. And I asked him when he was going to be getting his vaccine. He said he didn't want the vaccine because he didn't want the vaccine uh, that was going to be given to black people. So I said, so you think there's two separate vaccines, one for Caucasians and one for black people? He said, yes. And he didn't want the one given to black people. I mean, he had that much distrust in the system. And so I think we have a long way to go. Whoa. Well, I, I understand what you're saying about reluctance, but the other challenges that we've had here is just basically logistical as well, or making sure that we're getting the vaccines to the communities through the channels that are trusted the most anyway. So, but I, I think that's probably a lot to try to dig into, but I do think it will be a challenge that we'll certainly be watching closely in terms of how vaccines continue to be distributed throughout California and the U.S. Let me go to Ava in San Francisco. Hi, Ava. Thanks for waiting. Hi, thank you. I'm wondering if my unvaccinated teen and tween can sleep over at their vaccinated grandparents' house because grandma is begging for a sleepover. Ava, thanks. Dr. Offit, your thoughts for Ava in terms of managing the risk? I think yes. I mean, the teenagers are not the ones who are at greatest risk. It's grandma and grandpa that are at greatest risk. And if they're vaccinated, I think that's great. I do. I mean, yes, I think it's okay. All right, Eva, thanks. And let me go to Roberto in Berkeley. Hi, Roberto. Hi. Um, I was wondering, um, what does it mean, if anything, that uh, I've had this two Pfizer shots and I've had absolutely no uh, symptoms for as far as the strength of my immune system goes? Yes. Yeah, so, so, so if you look, um, about 50% or so of people who get uh, this vaccine, especially the second dose, will have, you know, fever, um, as well as, you know, muscle aches and joint aches and, and headaches and chills. Um, but but 50% don't. Yet the vaccine is 95% effective. So, so you don't have to have symptoms in order to be protected. Just congratulations. When I had my second dose, I had fever and chills and uh, fatigue for two days, which I treated by constant whining. And that worked because two days later it was gone. <laughs> Roberta, thanks for the question. Joe writes, will COVID booster shots or annual flu shots contain mRNA or an adenoviral? Is there a possibility of a potable or edible mRNA vaccine? Yeah, that would be surprising. The second part of the, the question. So, so messenger RNA is an incredibly labile molecule, easily broken down. If when you were given, um, you're given that vaccine, the messenger RNA is encapsulated in this so-called lipid fatty nanoparticle, which then present, prevents immediate breakdown. If you were inoculated with just mRNA, it would break down in moments in your body because you have something in your body called RNA aces that would break it down. Um, so then the question becomes if to give it by mouth is especially difficult because of the acid and, um, and and sort of proteases, meaning uh, enzymes that break down proteins that are in your stomach. So it's hard to give oral vaccines because the dragon in the cave is your stomach. And, and so it'd be hard to do that. Uh, it, but in sort of the first part of your question, I think that it is, um, 
it is likely that we have a, 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 an activation energy right now for mRNA vaccines and DNA vaccines and these sort of replication defective human and simian adenovirus vaccines that I think may well be relevant to trying to create a universal flu vaccine or a human immunodeficiency virus vaccine or a better tuberculosis vaccine or a malaria vaccine. I, I mean, we're going to learn a lot from these genetic strategies. I mean, we've, we entered essentially the fifth era of vaccinology where you don't give just, a, you know, Whole, uh, whole killed viruses or live weakened viruses or just purified proteins from the virus, you give the gene that then educates the cell to make that viral protein. We've entered this fifth area of, uh, fifth era of vaccinology. And I'll be curious to see how far we can go with it. I know, amazing. Paul Offit is an expert on vaccines, immunology and virology, a pediatrician specializing in infectious diseases. And uh, Patricia writes, if one in 20 vaccinated people won't get immunity, is there any research showing who might fall into that unlucky group of 5% who don't get immunity? Pre-existing conditions, age, ethnicity? Do you know, Dr. Offit? Right. So that question was asked at both of the FDA vaccine advisory committees, both on the, in the 10th and 17th when Pfizer and Moderna presented respectively. Who didn't, who wasn't, what, what are the characteristics of those who weren't protected? The, the, the biggest critical question is, is did they not develop an adequate immune response? And if so, what part of that immune response didn't they adequately develop? Was it, was it antibodies? Was it so-called T cells? What, what didn't happen to them that, that apparently happened to others? And there was no answer to that question. I mean, we are an outbred population. Um, we don't all respond to infections or vaccines the same way, but they were unable to answer that question. To my knowledge, they still aren't able to answer that question. We're talking about kids and the COVID vaccine and the latest CDC guidance. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Stacy in San Leandro. Hi, Stacy. Hi there. I have a question about grandparents visiting different households of their grandkids where uh, the parents have different vaccine statuses. So in other words, one household of grandkids, parents are not vaccinated, but another household, uh, the parents are vaccinated. And what those protocols are for mask wearing and distancing and, and, and the grandparents being able to, to be around all those different statuses. You mean if they were all together as opposed to visiting different families one at a time, Stacey? Uh, I mean the latter. So in a day, they're going around to the different households. Oh, but in a day. The parent. Paul yeah, or, or within a couple of days. Paul Offit? Yes. Yeah, so again, I, 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 the grandparent is the one who's most at risk because of their age. So, um, And so in terms of the, the, the compelling desire to see grandchildren and hug them, that makes perfect sense to do that. I do think, though, that you have to be careful because, again, it's not 100% effective. If you're coming in contact now with older people who you don't know, or and you know, but you do know that they aren't vaccinated, I just think if you can just hang in there for another <laughs> two to three months, I, I do think we're going to have a level of vaccination that will make everybody feel much more comfortable. And and but for right now, see what 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 upsets me in this, I guess, is I can promise you tens of thousands of people are going to die over the next six weeks. I know mm -hmm. this is true. You, just look at the rates. And, and I can tell you that all of their lives likely would have been saved by vaccination, but we don't have enough vaccine. And a critical number of people still don't choose not to mask or physical distance because we just so desperately want this to be over. And it's just not over yet. If you can just hang in there for about six weeks, eight weeks, I, I really do think your risks then continue to decrease. They're, they're, they're never going to go away, but at least you can critically mitigate that risk. Dr. Offit, you know, my producer alerted me yesterday that uh, a year ago, California, like literally to the day, California had recorded its second COVID death. 
The coronavirus has now claimed more than 54,000 people here in the state of California and more than 524,000 nationwide. When you think about these numbers and the stunning loss of life, what comes to mind for you? The 1918-1919 influenza pandemic, which killed 50 million people in the world. I mean, I don't think this pandemic will reach that, but you know, it was devastating. It brought the world to its knees and that's what this pandemic has done. I, I, I would like, I mean, no one's lived through this pandemic unless you're 130 years old. So this kind of pandemic, I'd like to think we're going to learn a lesson here. And the lesson number one, by the way, is that this is an, an international problem and, and you are only as strong as the weakest country out there. You know, there's 194 countries in this world, 130 haven't given a single dose of vaccine. And you just, people need to realize that we still give a polio vaccine in this country, even though polio was eliminated by the late 1970s. Why? Because polio still occurs in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And that's going to be true here too. We are not safe until the world is safe. So we have to commit to, we, we have technological advances in this country, economic advantages in this country. We have to commit ourselves to not only this country, but to the world because we're all at risk. And your point about just hanging in there, I feel like that's a, a really good thought to leave us with, that we really just need to hang on, even as tired as we are with some of the, the limitations and restrictions and precautions that we are being asked to take. Dr. Paul Offit, Professor of Pediatrics, the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, Director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. His books include Overkill, When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far. Dr. Offit, thank you so much for talking with us and giving us your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And thanks to producer Susan Britton for producing today's segment. And thanks to our listeners for their questions, comments, the scenarios, all things that are really top of mind for all of us. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.